Hey folks, just a quick note before we begin. Don't forget that Jim and I are in Walt Disney World November 10th through the 13th of this year doing a walk around of Disney's Animal Kingdom, the new Pandora Land, Epcot, and more. Visit storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish for more information on the event. We hope you can join us. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim L. It's me, Len Testa. We are halfway through our August recess, getting the kids ready to go back to school. In my case, it's uh, buying frying pans for Hannah. Jim, I don't know what you're doing for Alice. Probably the same thing. I was just scrubbing a frying pan for Alice. This is so bizarre. She made me breakfast this morning. Very cool. Wow. uh, my My back to school purchases for Hannah include string lights, a frying pan, and a fire extinguisher. I'm like, you know, if you're careful with, with those first two things, you may not need the third. <laughs> Very true. All right, Jim. Today we're going to talk about, um, it's a little tribute show to Marty Scalar, a uh, Disney Imagineer who recently passed away. But before we, we talk about that, news out of Volcano Bay at Universal that they've recently cut back on their rather extensive menu offerings at the water park. Basically going from some fairly complicated and unique food offerings to more traditional sort of theme park fare, burgers, hot dogs, and the like. What do you you make of this, Jim? I actually got this talk with Chef Steve Jason before the launch of the park, and this was advertised as their third park, their water theme park. And so they really wanted to have a wide menu because taking into account that they were going to have these cabanas that were built as part of the original design of the park. So mm-hmm. there were going to be a, a lot of folks who would just hang out in their cabana for the day and didn't necessarily just want hamburgers and hot dogs and that sort of thing. But that's the hard reality of any theme park. Three or four months in, there's typically some sort of hard reset because at that point, the guests have told you what they want. I was actually going over this list with Nancy because remember we, we were there part of the opening media event and she was like oh they took away the barbecue chicken pizza and it's said I guess I can understand that because even for the two of us that was way too much food but it was kind of interesting to see the stuff that was taken off the table. Do you think the things that were taken off the table were things that simply weren't resonating with guests or do you think it was a cost and preparation thing? Knowing the team at Universal, this is really more about what the guests told them to do. There's been some hard tweaking going on at Volcano Bay. Tapu Tapu didn't do what it was supposed to, and that meant that they had to sort of monkey with what the actual capacity of that park was. In the end of the day, you can make the most attractive sushi platter on the planet, but if guests aren't, in fact, eating that, it doesn't make any sense to keep that offering there. Yeah, okay. It's basically the problem that you have with, like, uh, Cheesecake Factory or with uh, Rainforest Cafe. In a 60-page menu, mm-hmm. there are going to be items that you have to keep on hand that people will never order. Mm-hmm. Right? So you think it's, it's that. It's just no one's ordering the avocado buffalo wing burger. Therefore, we should not keep avocado or buffalo, buffalo wing sauce. Yeah, I don't see this as a Volcano Bay in trouble because they're dropping 30 items. I think it's Volcano Bay. All right, this is what the guests actually want, and that's what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I I think some of it can be traced back to the fact that, number one, it has to be food that is portable because you're walking around with a lot of it. Number two, it can't be that heavy because, let's face it, you're walking around 
in a bathing suit. You you don't want to have a bloated stomach. <laughs> I mean, it's all, you know, it's all like you're gonna you're gonna eat three pounds of nachos or whatever, right? You 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 don't want those things. Yeah, and you're in the hot sun too, so you don't want really really heavy dishes. It kind of makes sense. No, and and again, I just I do feel bad for Steve Jason and his bunch because they put so much thought and design into their multiple good-sized restaurants within Volcano Bay. And they have all sorts of outdoor seating. Because the other thing, it's a water park. So you couldn't do a thing where you had an enclosed restaurant with air conditioning because people, like you said, are only wearing bathing suits. Sure. So the hope was that because people are going to spend the whole day there, that, you know, well, we could do something ambitious here. We could do something fun. And coming on the heels of Fast Food Boulevard, over in Springfield or Diagon Alley, the hope right. was that food could be a big component of this park. We could get a little ambitious. Obviously, that's not what the guests let them know they wanted. So That's fine, though. I mean, failing is one thing. Not mm-hmm. trying is another. There we go. You're okay with one. You're not okay with the other. Mm-hmm. Good. All right, so we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. I'm actually heading to Volcano Bay next week. I'll let you know how it goes. Anxious to hear what you actually think of the place. All right, Jim. So uh, so on with our show for the day. It's a tribute to Marty Scalar, a uh, noted Disney Imagineer who passed away on July 27th. He had spent 54 years with the company yeah. in, in various roles. And we thought that since he was so influential and he was one of the uh, the direct links to Walt having worked with him, personally, that it would be time to reflect on Marty's career with the company and talk about all of the rides that he influenced with the company. He's one of the uh, few Imagineers to have worked in every single park. Mm-hmm. Like I said, in a career that lasted more than 50 years, he obviously touched every part of Imagineering. So let's start at the beginning and how uh, Marty got employed by Disney. So the story is, if I recall correctly, he was in college editing the UCLA College newspaper. The Daily Bruin, if I'm remembering correctly. Is that what it's called, the Daily Bruin? That's that's a great name for a beer newspaper. (laughs) Okay. So he gets a call from E-Card Walker who says, hey, can you, hey, kid, (laughs) we got a job for you. Come over and edit the Disneyland newspaper. And this is amazing for a a couple of reasons. One, that Disney's fairly well established as a company right now, and they reach out to a a kid in a basically editing a college newspaper as a side project to come over and write the Disneyland newspaper. The second thing is that, and I think a lot of people forget this, but Walt envisioned Disneyland as its own little functional town, one with an actual newspaper that was supposed to be printed, was it every every week, every day? Yeah, some of this came on the heels of the fact that you had so many lessees, especially on Main Street, that wanted people to frequent their shops, and the thinking was just like a standard small-town newspaper, that you sort of create stories that would fit around the ads, and also just to make people aware of what new pieces of entertainment had been added, what was special for that week. Right. I think, from my way of thinking, though, that it does sort of speak to the the sweaty, desperate nature of the early days of Disneyland. I mean, think about it. The, Marty got tapped for this in, like, June, right? So the park is opening in July. Tons of time, Jim. Tons of time. <laughs> and, but, but, you know, what are the points? Somebody, somebody in June went, oh, crap, we need a newspaper. They knew they couldn't go to an actual adult, somebody who worked in the newspaper business, because this was probably going to crash and burn. Yeah. 
Also, there's that pesky problem that professionals want money. No, that's it exactly. So to reach out to... And remember, Marty never actually stopped going to college to reach out to this kid. And all right, he can give the illusion of professionalism. Okay, tag, you're it. You're the editor. Congratulations, kid. You're a newspaper. You're 21. Yeah. So he, he, does this, he does this for the summer, gets it up off the ground. Like you said, goes back to college. Mm-hmm. But then eventually returns to... To Disney when? Like 1959? I think it was closer to 57. Oh, okay. All right. But yeah, he had to finish up at UCLA. But Walt had really been charmed by this kid who, when they threw him in the deep end, was like, all right, whatever. Just did what he had to do. And he had to create somewhat entertaining stories, informative stories, that fit around the ads and wasn't pretentious about it. Walt loved these people that he could turn to and describe something and came back with exactly what he wanted, but had plussed it in some way. And that's the thing with Marty. He had delivered this good, solid stuff that, in a, a voice that Walt liked. So when Marty wrapped his college career, it was sort of like, hey, kid, you did a great job in Anaheim. Come on up to Burbank. Yeah, so up to the uh, up to the big leagues. You, you bring up a good point here that Marty's skill, it was in coalescing and communicating the ideas that Walt had in a, in a way that everyone could understand mm-hmm. from the American public all the way to, you know, corporate sponsors. And we'll talk about this, but I have this theory of corporate communication and, and I tell kids just starting out in their, in their jobs, this, whoever writes the PowerPoint writes the rules. Ah. And, and what I mean by this, the person who writes the presentation is the one who's actually distilling the, whatever concept needs to be communicated into actual policy goals. So going from an idea to, you know, a checklist of things you have to do. And so the person who's writing the PowerPoint is, the, is you know, it's their job to basically tell the idea people that there are constraints on time and money. They have to boil their idea down to the essence and, you know, what are the three key things that you need to, to implement. But you also have to tell, you know, if you're doing the communication, you have to tell the, the story of the project to management and to, especially to the people who are financing those things to explain how that project fits into the organization's goals. And I think you see time and time again, and the stories that we were going to tell about Marty, that basically that was what he was good at, taking these ideas, you know, some fairly vague concepts, mm-hmm. and then making them entertaining. And along the way, Marty came up with some rules or sort of some insights in, into how he did it. We'll talk about those, but I think it's, uh, I think it's pretty fantastic. But yeah, so uh, kids, if you're, uh, if you're thinking about going to, uh, to interning next summer, I always volunteer to write the PowerPoint, because if you write the PowerPoint, you write the policy. Uh, all right, so Jim, so he, so he goes to uh, to Walt, and he he goes to work to work for Disney, basically at the exact right moment, right, the golden age of Disney Imagineering, roughly nineteen, you know, late nineteen fifties to you know nineteen seventy five, where he starts off by one of the first big things that he, he works on is the script to Ford's Magic Skyway ride for the World's Fair, which uh, nineteen sixty four World's Fair, but he started on it in sixty one. We'll provide links to the YouTube videos for that. But the 1964 World's Fair stuff is important for a variety of reasons, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, if you think about the fertile ground that a lot of the stuff that eventually showed up in Epcot came from, this was the first time that Disney was dealing with a huge, high-level sponsors, you know, the Fords, the General Electrics, and who clearly had their own agendas going into these projects. And Disney, at times, had to be the one to push back and say, hey, 
we will get your message across, but this also has to be entertaining. And finding that sweet spot between servicing a giant client like this, which comes into a project, obviously with their own agenda, at the same time, entertain the public. That's really a lot harder to pull off than you might think. And Marty understanding this because of the way Walt would talk to these guys, that was honestly became the toughest part of Marty's job after we lost Walt was being the guy in the room who said, I hear what you're saying, but mm-hmm. this still has to be entertaining. And, and at the same time, not insulting the client and potentially losing the sponsorship money. I mean, Walt, through sheer force of personality, could push back at a Pepsi or a, a General Motors or not so much, you know, when Walt was gone. It became really that much harder. There were so many hard lessons they learned. I mean, Disney went during the early days when they were trying to get Space Mountain up out of the ground. So they arrange a meeting with with RCA, and here's General Sarnoff, the head of RCA. And the problem is that Marty entered this giant conference room and ended up, you know, General Sarnoff is at one end of the table, and he's at the other end of the table pitching this attraction. Like the Bugs Bunny uh, dining room scene where Bugs Bunny always wants the salt or the pepper past. <laughs> yes, it, no, that's it exactly. And so Sarnoff is leaning in because he can't quite hear what Marty's saying, and he eventually scribbles a note, which gets handed all the way down the table to through all of the lieutenants, and accidentally gets handed to Marty, and then he opens it up and he's like, who the hell are these guys? <laughs> And he knew, oh, we're not getting the money this time. But he knew he could make another run at them a year or so down the line. And that time it was like, okay, I'm sitting next to General Sarnoff. I'm pitching this to this man who has a hearing problem. And then he could close the deal. That's when he learned that just because the name Disney's on something doesn't necessarily mean people are automatically going to say yes. Yeah, it's, it's true. When Walt was alive, the force of Walt's personality or the credibility that he'd established is one thing. You know, you, you could get people to go along just by being present in the room, but when he wasn't there, that was the, the challenge, right? So one of the things that, uh, that Marty had done is he actually wrote the script for the Epcot film that Walt famously presented in, in 1966, uh, outlining basically the vision for the park. Then Walt passes away and Disney decides to go forward with Epcot mostly as a theme park. Remember, Marnie was was the champion of this plan, that first they were going to build the Vacation Kingdom with the theme park, the Magic Kingdom, that was going to then create a revenue stream that would then pay for the development of the full Epcot, the community, the, the City of Tomorrow idea, create the carrot that gets people to travel to Central Florida on vacation. And then once they're there and they're spending their money, you just accrue that and you take the relationships you've created with the GEs and the the Fords and the General Motors and build on those to build the city. But the park opens in 71. There's the oil crisis in 73. We're in the middle of Watergate in 74. And, you know, America's confidence is kind of shaken, never mind the fact that about the same time, the aerospace industry in Florida is crashing and burning. Suddenly, making that next step to Epcot the city is so much harder. Yeah, Disney eventually decides not to do the the city, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they, they do a theme park, but what they keep is Walt's optimistic vision of the future, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of the key component. Also, the permanent World's Fair exhibit. So the idea is still to bring in industry 
to showcase things to the American public about how the future can be, you know, the future can be positive if you have, you know, innovation and technology and capitalism and vision and stuff like that. So Marty's the guy who has to go out to sponsors basically to to get them to sponsor the rides. And Marty has some some really great stories in his book about how this went down. You mind if I go through a couple? No, 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 no please. So one, one point that Marty brings up, and again, he's, his role is communication. And as he goes to these sponsors, you know, even the ones that are, that are interested in doing deals with Disney to sponsor a pavilion, whether it's, you know, Exxon or whatever, he's got to balance out, like you said, the need of the sponsor to get their message across with Walt's vision of, of Epcot, Epcot being, you know, both educating, uh, educational and entertaining. So, so Marty says this in his, in his, uh, in his writings. He said, we knew there'd be questions about the influence of sponsors on pavilions, subjects like energy and food. But we thought that our uh, primary role in Imagineering is storytellers, communicators of accurate information in ways that made the subjects interesting, informative, and of course, fun whenever possible. So a major challenge was the credibility of what we presented. Our guests had to know that our energy story was a balanced view and not just Exxon's. And that although GE, you know, quote, brings good things to life, they're not alone in that quest. So they, advise, they, they come up with these, this idea of these advisory boards, which were made to make sure that the message that they were putting out was accurate and complete. So they pull in people from industry, from academia, from government, and from the sciences, and they basically tell Disney the theme that you're communicating here is right or you're off track. And he actually brings up this anecdote that says for the Living Seas Pavilion, one time they're in the middle of doing the, the planning for the Living Seas Pavilion and what they're going to do. And in the middle of this planning, which again is a you know, multi-year process, mm-hmm. uh, some new discovery was made that changed the knowledge of what could live at the ocean's deepest depths. And they basically had to throw out a bunch of several months worth of work and start over, which is the, the problem basically that, that Epcot still faces to this day, right? The problem that the future arrives faster than you can plan for it. Oh, absolutely. It's an interesting point. The other interesting thing that he says, and I, I think this is, it encapsulates everything that Epcot is. I will read this off. He said, I told the Imagineers that we were creating turn-ons when we were talking about the development of Epcot. We knew it was impossible to tell a complete picture in 20 or 30 minutes about energy or transportation or China or the American experience. Beyond the entertainment, we wanted our Epcot guests to come away wanting to know more about each subject and about each country. We wanted them, quote, turned on to the key subjects of the world they live in. I think that's the perfect description of Epcot, right? It's the thing that people don't get when they say that theme parks are fake. I mean, of course they're fake. All representations of anything are fake, but some representations are useful. And I think that's the thing that critics of theme parks often don't get. It's, it's not meant to be realistic. It means, it's meant to be inspirational. And this quote that Marty has on it is, is the perfect way of explaining that. The other quote that I love about, uh, about Epcot is he's, uh, he's getting this question from Eckhart Walker about the project schedule. You know, the, the park was supposed to open October 1st, 1982. He says, uh, you know, October 1st is not the problem. 1982 is the problem, which I love. Which I love. <laughs> oh, yeah, you want to know October 1st? Yeah, October 1st, not a problem. What year? <laughs> One of the problems that they hit when they were constructing Epcot, when they were doing the initial probing of the, of the initial site work for Epcot, where they originally planned on putting the transportation building was actually much closer to the walkway. It wasn't quite so far out, but they actually, they found a sinkhole in. 
I finally actually can tell people where the sinkhole is located, Epcot. I am, I am super excited about this. Go ahead. It's the pond next to Odyssey Restaurant. Really? Right there. It's, this is a quote from John Hench. We found a sinkhole while we were probing for the transportation pavilion. It turned out to be a bottle of water, and now we're putting a restaurant beside it. Supposedly, the reason the Odyssey restaurant is built the way it is, sort of dangling out over the water, is that's really as far as they could safely put it out there. This is the first time I've ever come across this information, Len. This is from the MG Russo and Associates. They were the consulting engineers for the construction of Epcot. Care to guess what the original name of this facility was? World Showcase Gateway Eatery Incorporated. You're so far off. So close. (laughs) Okay, good. The Odyssey Discotheque Restaurant and Cafeteria Complex. I'm getting this made on a shirt. Okay. (laughs) You can go to the actual MG Russo and Associates website and check this out. But a 40,000 square foot futuristic structure contains dining and disco entertainment in a surrounding of light and sound as only Disney can conceive. And that specialized effects lighting would be used throughout the facility and carefully coordinated with the unusual structures. So I've been going into this place for events when it was actually open as a restaurant, but now to look at it, to the way it's laid out, it's like, dear God, it actually was supposed to be a disco. If you think about it, with the sunken floor, it could be a dance floor. That's it, exactly. But at the same time, one of the things they stressed about this, and one of the reasons we've been living with this restaurant for as long as we have, or this building, the long it's we have, because the back half of it is actually one of two cast cafeterias for Epcot. Oh, no. You need to feed your cast members, and then plan originally was that the Odyssey Disco and the cast cafeteria would share a kitchen. They also added a first aid station to this thing, along with a baby changing thing, and of course a restaurant, and this is why we've been living with this building this way for as long as we have. The front half has been standing empty, obviously, for years, occasionally open for food and wine or flower and garden type stuff. Mm-hmm. But they can't get rid of it because they obviously need places to feed the cast and there has to be a first oh. aid station and a baby station. And then and it makes sense to put the cafeteria there because directly behind it is cast member parking, the red lot. So okay. literally, you, you pull in, you grab something to eat, you go to your shift, your shift is over, you go back, you get something to eat, you leave. Yeah. That makes sense. You continue here from the folks who were working on the Coco Grand Fiesta Tour project, and it's just mm-hmm. sort of like every time they talk about bumping out, and maybe we could eat Odyssey, and it's like, that ain't happening, pal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you, look at, if you look at the body of water that the Odyssey faces, it's wildly asymmetric yeah. to the other side of the walkway. It, mm-hmm. It's much, much larger. It's easily, what, two or three times oh, yeah. as big yeah. as the water on the other. And that's why, because it's a single... Yeah. And then when you think about the walkway across and the odd path. Right. It's not a straight line. And you think the straight line is, it's, it's not a straight line because, oh, that's good design aesthetic. Or, you know, it could be the fact that we all don't want people sinking into the earth. <laughs> Which is in, in and of itself a good aesthetic. You know, well, right? there, you good, go. good there you go. There you go. Just a little safety note. There. Anyway, back to Mr. Scalar, who, who no doubt that's probably one of the reasons Marty had the hairline that he did. from <laughs> The hair out from, hey, we can't put transportation there. GM would lose all of its vehicles into the ground and never see them again. I love this other story that Marty tells in his book, and it's about finding AT&T as the sponsor for Spaceship Earth. And it goes like this. Disney, the corporation, was 
looking for a sponsor for Spaceship Earth, and they were trying to play IBM and AT&T against each other, basically telling IBM that AT&T is interested, telling AT&T that IBM is interested. So they fly up one Friday to IBM to get IBM's decision, and they uh, go in and IBM says, the representative from IBM says, look, we can't tell you officially, but on Monday we're going to tell you no on the sponsorship deal. So they immediately call up AT&T, and they get a meeting that same day. They walk into AT&T and said, hey, guys, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but IBM's going to tell us on Monday what their decision is. This is basically your last chance to sponsor the ride. And apparently the CEO of AT&T said, tell IBM go to hell, we're sponsoring it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fantastic. It's a great story. No, that is. That is. If they didn't have a sponsor lined up for... Oh, it's going to happen, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they get the thesis attraction to the park. Just that period from when... Disney World opened in 71 to when Epcot Center opened in October of 82. The antacid sales in the Burbank area. I can't even imagine the stress and what it took for Marty and John Hench and Carl Berigny to bring this thing across the finish line. Oh, yeah, yeah. Epcot gets open eventually. It's not an immediate success, but over time, I think people start to appreciate it. Marty then goes on to work under... Michael Eisner, yep. and he's got, he's got some, uh, some great stories about Eisner. So uh, Eisner, of course, goes through this huge expansion era uh, in Disney, sort of Disney's uh, th- Disney theme park second golden age. They're building parks in Paris. They're building water parks. They're expanding Disneyland out. And uh, Marty's got this, this great story about, you, you've talked about this before, about the, uh, when Toontown gets built, they have to explain, the, you know, they give the backstory of of Toontown, and, and apparently Marty's one of the guys that, that comes up with this this idea that Toontown has always existed. So legend has it, and this is a quote, legend has it that Mickey's Toontown was established by Mickey Mouse in the 1930s after he'd become a big star with his partner Walt Disney. It was a quiet little place, more rural than it is now, where Mickey could relax between pictures. And when other uh, cartoon figures heard about Toontown, many began to buy property and move in, so that it wasn't long before Mickey was surrounded by his pals and his colleagues, uh, so Marty actually writes this and says, quotes himself in the in the story, it's been here since before Disneyland, says Marty Sklar, president of Walt Disney Imagineering. Walt built Disneyland around Toontown. But the funny thing about this is, the story that Marty gives for Toontown is basically the story of Palm Springs, California. <laughs> right? 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 <laughs> yeah, that's very true. If I might elaborate here, there's also a piece of this puzzle that I honestly wish had gone forward and that's the story that Marty's telling was actually going to be the plot of a Roger Rabbit movie. Right, one of the sequels, right? Yeah, there was supposed to be Toontown that they show in the movie that's supposed to be in right outside of Hollywood once again gets threatened and the decision is okay, we're going to relocate. And this one scene that was envisioned of all of these cartoon conveyances rolling up the five, going to Anaheim and reestablishing Toontown out there. And Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg were so excited because Hong Kong Disneyland, from Main Street to the castle, basically is what they built in Anaheim. What Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg, who were going to act as the producers of this Roger Rabbit sequel, wanted to do, was shoot there during the construction of this park. And the tail end of the movie basically would have been opening day at Disneyland, and there was going to be this great moment where there was this 
person standing next to Eddie Valiant in a really awful Mickey Mouse costume. They remember they borrowed them from Shipstead's and Johnson's Ice Follies just for the day, and they both walk backstage, and the person inside the bad Mickey costume pulls the head off, and it's it's Roger. You know, he's helping out for the day for opening Disneyland. Right. And then they're back in Toontown walking around. And do you think they'll ever open this to the public? Nah, I don't know, Roger. Maybe someday. You know. <laughs> I get the idea that that's one of those things where Marty and some Imagineers are at lunch trying to figure out the backstory for Toontown, you know, and somebody comes up with this idea that, oh, it's, you know, where Mickey, it's where all the cartoons live and Walt built around it. And then somebody hands Marty, you know, 20 bucks and says, this is the payment for the option on the movie script that I'm about to write (laughs) based on this idea. (laughs) There we go. But you got to love the fact that how many times these guys were dragged into meetings and like, hey, we're making the Black Cauldron. And do you think he can make a ride out of this? It's like, oh, dear Lord. Okay, we'll try. To once have the tide run the other way. It's like, hey, you know, we came up with this idea and maybe there's a movie here. There's a couple of, couple of other stories I want to point out. So, again, working with Michael Eisner, Marty tells the story of how Michael Eisner wanted a water park built for Walt Disney World. So... These Imagineers work for five years on models for these ideas, and it comes time for Michael to come in and review the three models and decide which one he likes. So he says uh, there was this tense pitch meeting one time, by the way, this is from the LA Times, where uh, Eisner does this meeting, and Marty says, we have these three good ideas. I set up a conference room for Michael Eisner to come in and look at the three ideas. The idea was that each team would take him through one at a time, each of the different rides, in the water park idea, the story, the guest flow, the restaurants, and the overall theming. So he says, Eisner walks in, points, says that one, and then leaves. <laughs> he says, you know, it's completely obvious that that's the right one, but these two other teams, you know, work on the, this idea for five years and don't even get a meeting with, a, with Eisner. And he has to go back and explain to him, that, the, to the teams, that somehow, sometimes this is what happens, which I think is... is you know, it's like, okay, Don, Marty, clean this up. <laughs> it's interesting you point that out. Marty lasted at Disney for 54 years. One of the things we need to stress here is that as a political animal, nobody lasts that long. And Marty yeah. dealt with Walt himself and then Card Walker and then Ron Miller and then Michael Eisner, even Bob Iger. Bob did some yeah. of the best tributes to, to Marty in the last couple of days. But that meant you had to be able to hear what your boss was saying and what he wanted to see. Eisner was a guy who came out of the, the movie studio world and he wasn't a Card Walker who worked cautiously and worked off a consensus. Michael was a seat of your pants kind of a guy, and that's a great idea. Let's go. Epcot opens in October of 82. Eisner comes through the door two years later, and one of the very first things they're working on is trying to increase the entertainment level at Epcot, and they're actually designing an entertainment pavilion. It was going to be slotted between imagination and land. And Michael takes one look at that, and they walk him through the concepts, which, ironically enough, had a great moments at the movies attraction. And Michael, who had actually been shown the plans to Universal Studios Florida, you know, while he was working at Paramount, it's like... Allegedly. Alleged, I, I, allegedly. I there we go. Allegedly. Supposedly. Reportedly. There we go. <laughs> but he knew this was coming down the pike. And so, oh, yeah, we should do that. And Marty had to be able to immediately pivot. And like, okay, the new boss wants to do this as a separate park. And go. 
be the one who had to break the news to the, the people who've been laboring on this pavilion. Good news, it's now its own separate thing. And bad news, we need to open it in two years. Marty was good at rallying the troops. He also, when things ran over budget, you know, like Pleasure Island, 300% over budget, he took the heat. That's right, because by this time he was uh, he was the head of engineering, right? Yep, yep. It eventually got to the point where Marty was basically promoted uh, up and out. He became more of a figurehead. I mean, you had the Bruce Vons of the world being the real hands-on guys. And that became tough for Marty. Like, for example, there was that battle in the late 1990s over the subs at Disneyland. And Marty publicly said, before they close this attraction, I will lay down the middle of Harbor Boulevard. Walt himself opened this. We're not going to close this. And it was weeks later that they actually closed the attraction and Marty had to wait almost 10 years for them to bring that back as the Finding Nemo submarine voyage. You mentioned California. I think one of the things that's really funny there is as Marty got on in his career, and to your point, he was sort of pushed mm-hmm. up and out, but not always to the Disney company's mm-hmm. benefit. One of the things that I think Marty was really good at was figuring out or knowing what people want in a theme park. So he was one of the early vocal critics of DCA, DCA 1.0 saying basically that the big problem with California Adventure was that it wasn't very immersive and didn't work on world creation. He said it focused on less immersive rides, and apparently when he said it, he said it derisively, like, less immersive rides. Rides. I think when, uh, when Marty used the word ride instead of attraction, he, he, meant that, he meant that intentionally. There's a couple of interviews with him where he talked about how hard, how long they had to work at getting the public to accept the phrase was attraction, that Disney didn't build rides, they built attractions. And Marty was always one of these guys who, when you were at a meeting or that sort of thing, he wanted to control the meeting masterfully. And he was always one of these people that's like, don't ask a question that you don't know the answers to to already or you know you trust the people who are going to respond and in fact that's the very thing you're, you're talking about that early walkthrough that marty got of dca this is the same time that he was there with john hench who remember he and john had worked together on epcot they were partners on their project and somebody made the mistake of asking john what he thought of disney's california adventure <laughs> and john flat out said i, I liked it better when it was a parking lot <laughs> You don't want to ask 80-year-olds whose politeness filters have long since been burned out, you know, what they think, because they will tell you. Yeah, yeah. you get to a certain point where, uh, where the, yeah, the, the, the word filters go off, yep. and it's, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it's what, so after that, Marty works on every park, Disneyland Paris, Tokyo Disneyland, I guess even the planning for, uh, for Shanghai. In his later years, what role does he have there? Is it... Uh, Consultant, is it? You know, the what? phrase that was used was ambassador at large. He and Tony Baxter, one of Marty's last public appearances was at the G23 Expo where he was honoring all of these imaginary legends. And Tony Baxter is kind of in the same boat that Marty was, that Tony got taken off of day-to-day working in Imagineering and now is being offered the chance to speak and write books. For guys who really liked doing rather than talking, this is tough. There are so many of the now third or fourth generation of Imagineering who just value the input they got from Marty. The actual lessons about 
the edits that he do on their presentations or explain that, you know, look, we have to go to a sponsor and actually get them to think that this is their idea. So, you know, can we leave a couple of things off the table here and get their input? I mean, he was a he was a master at that sort of stuff. And yeah, valid point. that to me, there's been all this talk of Marty being the Jiminy Cricket of the company. And, and you know, I just I think that simplifies a really complex guy who did so much of the stuff that you've just described today, Lynn, about the the behind-the-scenes maneuvering and the decades of hard work it took to get these places up out of the ground. Marty did that. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes we take things like the sponsorship of rides or the story of the rides, you know, for granted that they oh, came, God, no. you know, whole cloth from, from Imagineers. And what you see in Marty's career is that it's, basically a compromise or, you know, a way of blending in Walt's vision with what the Imagineers have, with what the corporate sponsor could do in order to get it built. And I think that's the, the skill that Marty brought to Imagineering. It's okay. We, we want to execute on Walt's vision. We need the money to do it. How do we stay true to that? And yet, you know, get this done. And I think that's, that's the thing that Marty did really, really well. No, I agree. Is there anyone left from in Imagineering who directly worked with Walt? Because I mean, now you're fifty. You're fifty some years later. At this point, those people would have had to have been in their early. 20s. I, I think we're we're literally down to Bob Gurr at this point, and Bob has been a consultant more than a steady employee of the company since the seventies. Bob was there on opening day. In fact, Bob was there the day after opening day where all the kids had destroyed the Autopia cars, <laughs> and it's like, can we get some of these running again? And it's like, well, maybe one or two. The toughest part is that when you lose these guys who actually were in the room or actually talked with Walt, and this is a company that gives a lot of lip service to its history and and certainly loves to mine the nostalgia, but I just sometimes wonder, do they remember it? And as long as you had a Marty in the room to go, no, we tried that. Yeah. There's a ton of institutional knowledge that walks out the door when uh, someone like Marty leaves, but he did write books. He influenced over 50 years, probably a ton of Imagineers, some who are towards the end of their careers themselves, some who hopefully are just at the beginning. So uh, so we'll see what happens. It reminds me, though, of this idea hmm. that one day in the not-too-distant future, no one alive will have walked on the moon. Oh. And what does that mean as a, as a uh, for humankind? Does it fade so that a couple hundred years from now, it becomes mythology? Or do people forget it? You know, I don't know. Same thing with, um, you know, with Walt stuff. As as the last of the, God, I hate to use the word disciples, but let's go with it. The last of the, the people with uh, uh, with direct knowledge of Walt passes away. How does that affect the way that we view, view Walt and the uh, the stories, the lessons, and stuff like that? Like, do we do we mythologize it even more? Do we try and figure out what it all meant? You know, do we all become like, you know, rabbinical scholars that uh, pour over the actual writings on YouTube or what uh, videos on YouTube. What does it mean, you know, 25 years from now? This has been the month of big questions, hasn't it? (laughs) At the Mission Breakout press event, I got the chance to talk with Joe Rohde. And he talked about how we're in this weird space now where if you go over to Disneyland, that's a park that was designed by guys who made movies. You come through the train station and you have your long shot of the castle and you have your establishing shot of the park. And But you can go in for close-ups, but there's always, it's cinematic language that drives you through that park. 
where Rhodey was talking about working right. on Mission Breakout into sort of, sort of parallel yeah, Avatar for, for uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom. And he talked about how this generation sure. of people who are coming into the theme park, we're, we're dealing with people who not only game, but now game with their children. So that's their frame of reference. And when you game, you're really inside of a dome. I mean, you can sort of pivot around and view the whole world. And he says, this is the world now that when you're designing a theme park attraction or, or a land or a park, it's not cinematic anymore. People expect, get back to that word, immersive. They expect to be in an environment that surrounds them, entertains them from all directions. And yes, I get that, you know, if we lose the last people who worked with Walt, that there's a downside to that. But... But at the same time, when you think about what people's ideas of entertainment, how that's changed, it, it's important to have people who understand the past, but also understand that this is today's world and people have different expectations, at least when it comes to their entertainment. It's true. That's a great point. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the concept of immersion is constant, whether you're talking about representing it for people whose mm -hmm. frame of reference is movies or whether the frame of reference is video games, right? The idea of immersion is still a good idea, but the way that you implement it is different, right? So it's like saying, you know, for lack of a better thing, like the concept of a, a portrait in art meant different things in the 16th and 17th oh, centuries than it did yeah. in the 20th century, right? I mean, the, mm -hmm. the style is different, the, the things that you look for are different, and then the things that are important to the people who are purchasing the portraits are different, but it's still a portrait, right? I don't know. I just to sort of jump back in the news of the week here. It just sort of like that announcement earlier this week about the the VR thing that's that's coming to Disney Springs and Downtown Disney out in California. The what is it? Yeah, wait. I didn't I didn't mention this in the news, but the idea is that it's a store where you can do an immersive VR Star Wars experience, right? Yeah. What is it? Secret of the Empire. They're not talking price point yet. They're not talking length of experience, but this is. Lucasfilm, its own Lucas ILM X Lab uh, facility that that's pairing with some virtual reality creators called The Void, but but yeah, I mean, face it, that entertainment continues to march forward, and I think things would have probably been easier for Disney if there were yet another Marty Scalar out there to walk around and go, "Hey, you Apple, don't you want to pay for this? Look, you come on over here, let me show you this thing that you should sponsor." So. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I think Barty would be would be great at that. Again, hopefully he's got he's got people that he's trained to do it. By the way, I, I totally think the uh, Star Wars VR thing is is basically a test lab or a test kitchen for uh, both Galaxy's Edge and the Star Wars Hotel. I mean, that that's no that's doubt, be obvious. no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> but again, leave it to Disney, and you'll pay us for our research. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like asking uh, medical volunteers, yes, we're going to take your liver, but could you also give us $5,000 for that? Well, we use really nice Velcro. <laughs> so. All right, Jim. So I think it's a very good tribute to Marty Scalar. Like I said, the stuff that he did it, not only at Disneyland, but uh, but with Epcot was was fantastic. And Epcot wouldn't be the, the same without it. Speaking of Epcot, our next show, we're going to do tributes to Universe of Energy. That's right. That's right. If you think about it, Universe of Energy was what actually powered development of, of the great movie ride. And, and it, they're both theater car driven attractions and they are both closing on August 13th. Though I, I have to tell you, Lynn, I, I've just found out about there are hundreds of cast members who are flying in or traveling to Orlando 
next weekend for the, the the weekend of the 11th, 12th, and 13th to say goodbye to the great movie ride. Oh, it's been all over. I mean, if you if you followed it on Twitter, there are people who are going back and rewatching all of the movies referenced mm-hmm. in the great movie ride in order. It's fantastic to see it all. And there, I mean, there's special T-shirts being made, and yeah, it's it was a good ride. It's time has passed. I I'm okay with it closing. I'm okay with appreciating it the way it was. It's it's fine. But yeah, it's I think the tributes too are uh, are touching the number the number of cast members who worked on this thing too. Oh yeah, well you know if you incredible. think about between you know the various different positions in the attraction, the folks from entertainment who had to work the to the gangster or the cowgirl or whatever. Yeah, I mean it, it, there's a lot a lot of people who you know have been part of this ride since May of '89. All right, we'll talk. We'll talk about that on the next show. There we go. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. Please go on to iTunes, Stitcher, and your local movie theater cinema bathroom. And write a review of our show, please, and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.